years, five years severely depressed, but I spent years, maybe even my entire life up until this year, numb. Couldn't feel anything and just stapling on emotions. And yesterday I was driving in my car to the Dollar General to get cream cheese icing so we could make gingerbread houses with the kids. And guess what? Song comes on and I feel and I start crying just like I cried here. So I don't care. (laughs) And if you get a taste of that, you won't care either. (laughs) Amen. Amen. I mean, I, I want you guys, I want the best for everybody in this house. And you guys probably haven't dealt with the same things I've dealt with, just like I haven't dealt with the same things you haven't, haven't dealt with. But God is so good that he knows what each and every one of us needs. And he will orchestrate and, with lack of a better word, mold and manipulate without changing. He doesn't change the gospel. But he will form it and fashion it to fit every need that you have. You know why? Because he's good. And you know that message that I was going to preach last week on Psalm 73? Well, I asked God's permission if I could preach it today. So I'm going to preach Psalm 73 today. And I'm up here, and he hasn't told me to change it. Now, last week I did all but read the psalm, and then he told me to change it. So we're still, we're still, there's still that potential. But if you have your Bibles, up until God says otherwise, turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I want to remind us of the goodness of God. That's what I want to talk about, the goodness of God. Because holidays can be tough. Holidays can be the best seasons and days of the year, or they can be the worst. And if you've got cantankerous family members, or you've lost somebody that you love, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Psalm 73, we're going to start in verse 1, but let's pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to worship you through preaching this morning. Just like the song, I'm presenting it to you like the boy presented the fishes and loaves. Something that seems meager or earthly or natural. But when you touch it, when you bless it, it becomes something miraculous. Something that can nourish and sustain thousands and lord i'm just believing that if you can do that with a couple pieces of bread and a few fish you can do that with this sermon in jesus name amen psalm 73 verse 1 truly god is good to israel even amen all the time even to such as are of a clean heart But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. 
Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Amen. Amen. I shared with you guys last week as I prepared to preach this, that this psalm helped me through a particularly difficult scenario. Reading it and realizing that it's not all a field of daisies. <laughs> you know, sometimes life sucks. Sometimes things are difficult. And it's no different from the psalmist. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to do something real quick. I want to ask you, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that? You confess that? God is good? If I say God is good, you respond with all the time. And all the time, God is good. And you believe that. You confess that. You say that. Do me a favor. This may be the only time a preacher will ask you to do this in church, but I want you to do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes. If I hear snoring, I'll just yell louder, okay? <laughs> or throw a Bible at you. <laughs> close your eyes. Do me a favor. Close your eyes, and I want you to picture God. I want you to picture God in your mind. I'll give you just a second. Picture God. I'll do it too. You got it? Everybody picture God in your mind? All right, open your eyes. We say God is good. That's what we say. But then we live and maybe don't believe it so much in our practice or in our prayer or in the way that we use our money or in the way that we live our life or in the way that we handle our relationships or the way that we talk to one another. We say it and we say that we believe it, but then we end up with this inward struggle of do we actually believe it? When you pictured God in your mind, what was his expression towards you? Was it angry? Was it welcoming? Smiling, frowning? Was he stern? Did he look like some stoic way off in the distance? Could you see his face? Did you picture God the Father or did you picture Jesus? Was he seated on a throne high and lifted up, filled with majesty and wonder? Was it a throne of judgment or of mercy? How far away were you from the throne? Were you at the throne 
Or were you at the barely in the door of the throne room? Or were you outside the throne room? Was he unapproachable? Was he on a throne at all? Was he standing? Was he walking with you? Were you in close? Was he embraced? I'm not asking you to answer those questions for me, but I'm asking you to answer those for yourself because a lot of times what happens is when we say that God is good, but then we think on God, even just for a moment, the image that we conjure in our mind or that we form or cultivate in our mind actually says a lot more about what we believe about God in our heart than what we say. Truly, God is good. Faith statement. It's not up for negotiation. Truly, this is the truth. God is good. He doesn't say God is good if you believe it. Look, your belief about God doesn't change one thing about God. God is not... Look, I watched, we watched Elf, the Christmas movie. It's Christmas. We watched Elf yesterday. Love and hate that movie. I love it because it's hilarious. I hate it because that, is, that movie makes me so uncomfortable. I'm like, how in the world can that man do those things? Like, man, that is... Anyway, I'm getting off point here. But there's a portion in the movie at the very end. Has everybody seen Elf? If not, I'm going to spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. I don't care. It's been out for years. If you ain't seen it by now, you may never watch it. But there's a portion at the end of the movie where Santa Claus's sleigh is stuck on the ground because it's powered by belief and Christmas spirit. And they have to conjure up a lot of belief and Christmas spirit to get Santa Claus's sleigh off the ground. God don't work like that. God isn't like Tinkerbell. If you stop believing in fairies, fairies die. No, God doesn't work like that. You believe, you don't believe. God is still God. There is no lack in God that your belief is going to change who he is. He is immutable, meaning unchangeable. He's good whether you like it or not. He's good whether you believe it or not. He's good whether you accept it or not. He is good because that's who he is and it will not change. Your belief doesn't do anything for or against God's goodness. But your belief affects your participation in that goodness of God. It doesn't change who God is, but it changes whether or not you get to participate and enjoy that. Because see, the psalmist right here, he says, truly God is good. But then he does this thing that all preachers do. He puts a disclaimer on it. And it's like, God wants to bless you if... <laughs> you, we, God wants you to prosper if... <laughs> preachers do this all the time. Doctors do it too. <laughs> oh, you'll get better if you take this medication. You stay on it for the rest of your life. Like we always put like these little qualifiers or conditions on it. Most people do that too. Oh, we'll have a good relationship if. <laughs> we'll stay good friends if. I'll love you if. <laughs> I'll hang out with you if. We put conditions on it. And so Asaph, in typical preacher fashion, puts a condition on it. Truly God is good to Israel. That's the first condition. Israel is Jacob, or the children of Jacob, which is those that are in covenant relationship with God. I ain't going to spend the time to explain that. You can take my word for it, or you can ask questions or study it yourself. Israel is referencing those in covenant relationship with God. So God is good to his people. That's not too bad. Be one of his people. God's good to you. Okay. Then he goes and does it. Then he goes and takes it just one step too far, doesn't he? To those that are pure in heart. Those that are clean in heart. 
well, that kind of disqualifies me. Don't look at me like that. It disqualifies you too. <laughs> Are you pure in heart? Is every thought that travels the corridor of your mind pure and clean and good and righteous? Everything that crosses through your mind, would you love to sit down with Jesus and have a conversation? <laughs> what about having a conversation with the person in the seat next to you? Or a few seats from you? Or what would you like every thought that you've ever had pass through your mind? Would you like to get up in the pulpit and talk about it? <laughs> no? <laughs> then I guess you're disqualified from this, this statement, right? So God is good to those impure in heart. Okay. And then he does the distinction, but as for me. That's what we do. God is good, but as for me. God is good, but as for me. And so we'll do this. Oh, I believe God will heal them. Well, but me, you know. I'm just, I'm just supposed to deal with this. Or I believe God will bless them. But me, as for me. Come on, you, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody over there struggling, and you'll pray with the faith of St. Paul himself and be like, yeah, God will bless them. God will pour out on him. God will heal them. God will touch them. But as for me, you better say amen or oh me because this, is, this, this preaches to me. I will pray for you and have faith all day long. And then my stomach starts hurting, and I'm like, oh, as for me. <laughs> Tell me you don't identify with this. God's good to them. God's good to her. God's good to him. But as for me. And so we'll say God is good. We'll give our Sunday school answer. God is good all the time. All the time is God is good. I believe that God is good. I know that God is good. I know that he's righteous. I know that he's unchangeable. I know that he's loving. I know that he's merciful. But as for me. And we create a distinction. And we say, yep, God is all this, but I'm outside of all that. And I'm just the one exception. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've asked. You don't know how long I've dealt with this. You don't know how much I've struggled. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. No, I don't, but God does. And He doesn't change based on your situation. And our circumstances should not dictate our belief. Our experiences should not dictate our belief. And I know that seems counterintuitive. But look, experiences can lie. Because I've told you guys this before. This that you see, that you touch, that you feel, that you taste, I ain't going to taste this, but you get the point. What you hear, what you see, what you smell, what you feel, your five senses, that is subnatural. We call that the natural realm. That is not the natural realm. I hate that. It is subnatural. The natural realm was what God created in Eden when everything was in perfect order and they could walk with God in the cool of day. That's the natural realm. And everything since the fall is subnatural. And so we trust our subnatural experiences and say, well, they have to dictate my belief. No, they don't. Your belief should dictate your experience. Your belief should dictate your reality. But instead, we work outside in. Instead of inside out, we work outside in. We let our experience or our reality dictate our belief rather than letting our belief dictate our reality. And so then we're just like Asaph. And we say, God is good. I believe that. But not to me. Am I wrong? You guys guilty of it? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you are because I am. And I'm not saying that you're, I'm better than you or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a struggle that's common to all Christians. 
We say we believe one thing, but then we operate like we don't. And then he goes on and starts playing horseshoes and hand grenades. Have you ever heard that expression? Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Here's one. I do this all the time. And, <laughs> and God bless my wife. She, she's very patient with me, but I do this all the time. I'll say, I'll see her cleaning something. And I'll say, oh, I was going to do that. Every, every si- almost every single day. It should be like washing a dish, and I'll be like, oh, I was going to do that. <laughs> she don't even respond to me anymore. <laughs> this is like, oh, yeah? <laughs> I was going to do that, but I got distracted. I was going to do that, but I got lost in thought. I was going to do that, but I forgot. I was going to do that. I was going to, I was going to, almost. Any you guys ever say that? Ever had that said to you? Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It's like, <laughs> well, thanks a lot. You're either going to win a game of horseshoes or lose a limb because of a hand grenade. Like, Almost only counts in those two things. Well, Asaph is doing that because he said, I almost messed up. My feet had almost slipped. I had almost stumbled. Right? He's playing horseshoes and hand grenades. He's not even done it. He's just saying the incidental, the temptation, I almost fell. Now, I'm not saying that Asaph was sinless or anything like that because he goes and he admits his sin. He admits his fault. His fault was the envy of the wicked. He envied the wicked so much that he almost became wicked himself. He envied the sinners so much that he almost jumped in himself. That's why he's saying, I nearly slipped or I nearly fell. I almost did it because he was envying them so much. Look, if you stare at something long enough, it will distort your per- perspective. That's, how you, that's a good way for you to realize that this reality, quote-unquote, this sub-reality is not really the truth of what there is. Look, we went to Dollywood, and there's this ride. It's like a tower. I think it's called like the pitfall or something. But you, you get strapped into the seat, and it goes straight up, and you just sit there for an undisclosed amount of time. And then whenever the devious, wicked con- operator of that machine decides, oh, they're not expecting it, he flips the switch, and you just plummet, free fall back down. And... <laughs> It's awesome. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie sometimes. But when you're on the ground, if you look up at this thing while you're waiting in line and you stare at it for long enough, it'll look like it's doing this. And you're like, I'm about to trust that to go all the way up to the top and then free fall back down and it's waving in the wind. It's not really moving. But you staring at it long enough distorts your perspective of reality. And so what happens to Asaph is his envy of the wicked distorts his perspective of reality. And this happens to all of us at one point in time or another. You're like, God, I just don't get it. Why? They live like a sinner and they're blessed. They're prospering and they're not following your covenant. And I'm over here struggling and I'm doing everything I can. That pastor, here's one that does it for me. I'll be honest, I'll confess my faults before men so that I can be forgiven and healed and follow Scripture and all that good stuff. Here's one that does it for me. I see pastors, and I know of pastors and preachers that are wicked. And I don't just mean they have sin. I know of some that are just outright wicked people. They're liars. They extort people because they manipulate and they prostitute the gospel and they do all of these things. And they're wicked, selfish sinful people 
and I watch them prosper. And I watch people gobble up their teaching. And I watch them make all this money and everything. And I'm like, God, why don't you just strike that? Just one bolt of lightning right there, just straight through the building, right there while it's on TV. Hallelujah. And just, that's horrible. That's horrible. But <laughs> I have never officially asked God to do this, for the record. Now you don't believe me. I don't care. But <laughs> strike them down, Lord. No, but I have. I have. I was like, God, why do you let them do that? Why do you let them? People like that are the reason that half of these people won't come anywhere near a church because they know that they're liars. The world can recognize fake. And I'm like, God, why do you let them continue? Why do you let them continue like that? When they're out here distorting and, and all this, why? Because it rains on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. Asaph didn't like that verse very much, I can tell. I don't either. <laughs> but we, we ask ourselves, like, God, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Why are they being blessed and I seem like I'm being cursed? I bet the Apostle Paul asked that when he said, you've set forth your apostles last so that we can be made a laughing stock. <laughs> but you ask yourself that. Because we stare at it long enough and our perspective gets distorted. Like, see, look at this. What, look at some of the things that Asaph says about the wicked. Let's see. Um, they are not in trouble as other men. Have you ever known somebody that's prospering financially or materialistically? They in heaps of trouble, whether they admit it or acknowledge it or not. I remember a couple years ago, it's been a long time ago now, close to a decade ago Tom Brady had that interview that everybody talked about and every preacher put it up on the TV to say look this is an example of why prosperity doesn't get you what you want because he said I've won all these Super Bowls I have all this money I'm married to a supermodel he's like is this all there is and so they put that up everywhere like look it's it, no, there's no conclusion to it like there's no f true satisfaction in that but he had trouble <laughs> look at Tom Brady's life this past year <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, divorced and everything else. And he was supposed to be in retiring and living on a beach somewhere. And then he goes through the divorce and his wife's a witch and cursing him and all this crazy stuff happening. And that's, that's news. That's not me just assuming. Like, that's actually news. She's a witch. She put a curse on him. His play sucked. He looks like he's been through the ringer several different times. Just weird stuff. He has trouble. But... Uh, Looking from the outside a year ago, everybody would be like, oh, he's, he's got it made. I'd love to trade places with him. <laughs> How about now? Anyway, um, they are not plagued like other men. The wicked get sick just like everybody else. That's one thing that they can't escape. They can't escape death. And I've seen all these different things where you have these millionaires and stuff trying to all these crazy outlandish treatments because they get some disease that they cannot get rid of and their money is worth nothing because they're still in the same boat like everyone else that's why they say death is the great equalizer but you see i don't i could go on but i just pulled out two right there at first hand asaph had stared at the wicked long enough to where his perspective of reality had been manipulated so now he's buying into an illusion 
he's buying into an illusion. That's why when they have these videos, and a big one is like when they do the magazines and they take and they Photoshop people's face and people's body, and there's nothing, they, they don't exist in reality. They're a computer-generated image. And then young girls and boys look at it and say, I'm supposed to look like this. And it's like, they can't, because that's not reality. That's not a human. That's a generated picture. But we have so manipulated the standard of what masculinity is and what beauty is. And now we don't even know what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman. (laughs) But they've so manipulated this because we've stared at the world so long that this stuff has infiltrated the church. And now the church is after the same things that the world is. The church is after the prettiest people to put up on stage. The people that look the best. The people that sound the best. The people, and, and it's like money and all this other stuff because we've stared at what the world has so long that it's just completely shifted our entire perspective of what reality is and what goodness is. So we're standing just like Asaph and saying, truly God is good. I believe that. Sunday school answer right here. But as for me. Let's continue. So verses 4 through 12 is all about this. It's all about Asaph staring at the wicked and buying into this illusion. But then he comes down and he gets to this place where we all have gotten at one point in time or another. And I'm I'm not asking if you've gotten there. I'm just assuming you have. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, where you get weary in doing the right thing. You just get tired of it. And he says, surely I've cleansed my hands in vain. I've washed my hands in innocency. The better translation, I don't want to say better translation, a a fuller translation would be I've washed my hands in ignorance. Meaning, I did this for no reason. I have been living as a Christian or living a morally righteous life for no reason whatsoever. Because the wicked are getting just as good and just as blessed as the righteous. And the righteous are dealing with the same junk that the wicked is dealing with. And it's just all the same. Sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous and it rains on the just and the unjust. So why even bother? Why even bother to do the right thing? Why can't I just be a jerk like everybody else? <laughs> Come on, have you, have you ever had a bad day and you're like, I just want to just... I want to slap them, but I don't want to get my hand dirty. <laughs> like, I mean, come on, come on. Like, have you ever just gotten there where you're just like, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of doing the right thing. I'm tired of being the one to bear the burden. I'm tired of being the one to bite my lip. I'm tired of being the one to deal with the stress and the anxiety of maintaining the peace because it doesn't do anything anyway. You ever gotten there? I've been there. I'm tired of knowing all the trash on this side. I'm not talking about you guys. I'm just talking about pastoring a church. Let me clarify before I say this. I'm tired of knowing about all the sin and junk in this row and all the sin and junk in this row. And this row is mad at this row because they think that they're sinners, but I know their sin. (laughs) Having people come up to me, it's like, is the church taking care of you financially? And I know good and well they don't tithe. (laughs) It's like, what do you care? If you cared, you'd tithe. (laughs) I made it a point a long time ago to not know what people give because of that reason right there. So that I can just have a conversation without being uh, aggravated that this person's coming up to me. How's the church doing financially? Are we in the black? And I know they ain't never given a plug nickel to the church. Hmm. I get tired of that. I've had moments like that where it's like, goodness gracious, is a pastor a pastor, a spiritual shepherd, or is it a babysitter for adults? Like, come on, 
I'm, I'm confessing mine from my perspective, but I'm sure you guys have been in there where you're like, why even bother? Why go to church? Why can't I just sit at my home, listen to the worship team from this church and the preaching from this church, and then live my life alone and quit dealing with the foolishness? Well, as Faith says, quit dealing with the Tom foolishness. <laughs> but then Asaph doesn't stop there. Because he goes down and he says, I've been plagued all the day long, chasing every morning. But he said, if I said, I'll speak thus, meaning if I said this, if I said this and I taught this, I should offend against the generation of the children. Put the, um, if you guys can, verse 15, put that in the NIV. Can you do that? Switch that to the NIV for a second. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. That old English is, is a little bit difficult to understand the thrust of what's saying, so that's why I had him switch to the NIV for that verse. Because what he's saying is, if I had done this, if I had said this, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain, I've washed my hands in ignorance, I've lived righteously for no reason, I would be lying. I would be betraying your gospel. I'd be betraying the truth of God. And I would be betraying the generation that comes after me. Because it's not true. And you want to know how he knows it's not true? Because the next verse, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Okay, so now he's on the seesaw. He's on the seesaw where everybody gets, where it's like, I know the Bible says to do good, but it doesn't seem like my experience is validating what the Bible says. Back, forth, back, forth. So you wake up this day and like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the holiest Christian that's ever been holy. And then the next day you're like, I just give up. The back, forth, back, forth. What's the point of all this? Well, God says to do it, and I know that God is good. That's Sunday school answer, but it's really not profiting me. I'm still sick. I'm still broke. I'm still whatever. And it's back, forth, back, forth. You guys ever been on the seesaw before? Ever been on the seesaw before? I have. I'll own it. <laughs> I've been on the seesaw recently. <laughs> like, let, let's stop saying, oh yeah, 15 years ago I was on that seesaw, but God brought me out of it. No, I've been on the seesaw recently. Like, it's a daily struggle. That's why the Bible teaches and Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Or in Deuteronomy it says, you know, today a choice is laid before you, life and death. But I choose life. Like, it's every single day. It's a battle. The seesaw is presented. <laughs> you guys want to know something funny? I heard a comedian one time, and he said, if you want to have a life of anxiety, I will tell you how to do it. If you want to have a life of stress and anxiety, here's how to do it. Wake up every morning and go stand on a scale. First thing. That will give you a life of stress and anxiety because you're like, oh, no, I've gained two. I've lost four. What did I do? Oh, I'll do it right. And the next day, I've gained eight? What? <laughs> It'll give you a life of stress and anxiety. You want a better one? You want, a, you want another one? <laughs> Count the people in the church every week. <laughs> you want a better one? Look at the bank account every day from week to week. It'll give you stress and anxiety. It will. Anytime you start paying attention to that on a daily basis, on a micro level, it'll give you stress and anxiety. Anything. Anything will. 
even something inconsequential, you'll stress yourself out about it. Because that's just who we are. Seesaw, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. But, and this is my favorite word in the whole chapter, in the whole psalm, until. Until. My favorite word in the whole psalm, until. Meaning, I had almost fallen, I had almost slipped, I was struggling. As for me, I was distinguishing and separating myself from the covenant promises of God. I was consumed with paying attention to the what, what was going on with the wicked. I was buying into the illusion the devil almost had me. I was in this mental seesaw. I didn't want to lie, but I also I didn't want to lie and betray the children of the generation, but I also didn't want to preach something I didn't believe, and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until, until, I went into the sanctuary. Until I went into the sanctuary. It doesn't say church. It doesn't say church. A church should be a sanctuary. And we call this place the sanctuary. But a sanctuary is a holy place. A sanctified place. A place that is set apart for the purpose of God. And unfortunately, not all churches have sanctuaries. Oh, they have places where someone stands on a stage and other people, you know, are in the pews or the seats and someone preaches and sings and great, but that's not a sanctuary just because you have those things. It's a sanctuary when God's there. If God ain't there, then it ain't a sanctuary. I don't care what you call it. That doesn't make it a sanctuary. When he encountered the presence of God, then he understood therein. Look, I have had a couple experiences in my life, one major experience with the presence of God. And I will tell you this, when the presence of God, and I'm talking about the fullness, I'm not talking about the sweet presence of God, I'm talking about the fullness and the dread of God's presence comes into the room. I don't care if you've never been scared in your life, I don't care how tough you are, it will make you shake in the depths of your soul. I was so scared when the presence of God came into the room that I dropped to my knees and said, God, either stop or kill me because I couldn't take another second of it. And he's gracious. And he pulled, pulled back. And then as soon as he stopped, she's like, wait, no, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. <laughs> but... The one thing that I can tell you about that encounter is when God's presence comes in, the very first thing that you're aware of is his otherness, his holiness, the fact that he and you are not the same. God is not like you, but bigger or more. God is entirely other than. And the first thing that you encounter when you encounter his presence is his otherness. His otherness. And that's why Asaph proceeds forth into this remorse. Because he is made aware of the distinction between him and God. He is made aware of the fact that he is not holy, but God is. And he starts repenting. But first things first, there's this fine line when you're convicted. When you are convicted, there's this fine line where you can go over here into repentance or you can go over here into condemnation. And Asaph, like a 
good believer goes straight into the condemnation. He says this. He says, he says, he talks about the end of the wicked, blah, 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 blah. But then he says this. He says, so foolish, verse 22, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before you. It's like, I'm no good. I'm worse than a dog. I'm worthless. How many of you guys have ever felt conviction and that's where you go? It's a place of condemnation. Like, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. God, why do you even care about me? Just take me out because I'm no good. That's where I go. I mean, in fact, for most of my life, that was my default reaction. When God moves and his presence comes into the picture, my default reaction is to say I'm worthless. I can't do anything right. Can I tell you that's kind of toxic? It's toxic behavior. In a relationship, in a relationship between two humans, if this person expresses a genuine concern about something that has happened, like, just use this as an example. I won't pick on my wife anymore. Um, let's say Chuck slaps me. For whatever reason, Chuck slaps me. And I express a concern and say, Chuck, that was not correct social behavior. And then Chuck says this, I'm no good. I'm the worst person ever. I grew up in this area and I just, uh, you know, and it's just all my fault. I'm so sorry. You know what happens? It is, in that situation, the person that originally did the wrong is now twisting the scenario so that the person that was wronged now has to become the caretaker for the person that did the wrong. And that's what we do to God. Conviction comes. You're not where you need to be. I'm worthless. I'm so good. God, come cheer me up. Please make me feel better about myself. And then we expect preachers to do that too. (laughs) Don't challenge me. Don't preach sin. Don't tell me that I can do better. Don't tell me that I can believe more. Don't tell me that I'm not perfect and shining and the epitome of Jesus on the earth because that would hurt my feelings. That's what we do. We offend God and then we manipulate it and say, God, now you need to care for me and console me. Am I wrong? But that's what Asaph does. I was as a beast before thee. I'm no good, God. But see, God, in His goodness, He doesn't leave you there in that place. When He comes in with all that force of His otherness, that's His left hand coming down. But it says, as Song of Solomon, with His right hand, He does embrace me. Right hand is the hand of favor. He comes down with all that force of judgment, but then He holds us with His right hand. Meaning, he reveals to us our sin and otherness and simultaneously convicts. And instead of using conviction as a form of judgment and condemnation to press us down and to beat us and to say, you're no good, and I, I and sending us to hell and all of that, which there are truths to that, don't get me wrong, but he invites us simultaneously through that conviction to come into closer intimacy with him. And that's why Asaph says this, he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. 
Meaning that the conviction was never meant to be something pushing you down the road or pushing you away, but something to guide you closer into his presence. And then you receive me into glory. So you have this, the conviction, the pulling, the holding, the guiding, and the receiving. And that's when you find the culmination of this shift. See, it starts in verse, where was it at? Verse um, 17, until. See, he's got his perspective flawed, focusing on materialism and on this mental seesaw. But in verse 17, he introduces the word until. Like this was the way everything was going until I came into an encounter with the presence of God. But the moment I come into an encounter with the presence of God, there is a shift happening. And the shift follows this conviction, this um, holding, this guiding, this receiving, and it culminates in this, whom do I have besides you? None do I desire but you. See, Asaph is upset because he's focusing on a material, temporary prosperity of the wicked. But now his perspective has shifted, and he's not worried about a materialistic prosperity. He's worried about a spiritual prosperity. He's worried about the presence. See, his desire went from possessions to presence. And as long as you desire materialistic things and the subnatural, you'll live your life in the seesaw. As long as your eyes are on the subnatural, you live in the seesaw. But the moment that you can get to a place, we sang it, long as I got King Jesus. (laughs) The moment that you get to that place, that you encounter his presence, really encounter his presence, your materialistic desires begin to filter out. And then you can sing the song that we just sang with Josiah. I give you all of it, all of my fishes and loaves, everything. You take what you want because all I want is you. Bring the conviction. I'm not going to condemn myself and throw a pity party. Bring the conviction. I want to repent because if that brings me into closer intimacy with you, then I want everything that you have. If there is something in between us. Have you ever tried to give somebody a hug while they're holding something? You ever tried to give somebody a hug while they're holding something? Come here, come here. Come here. I don't know why I'm doing this. She's going to be mad at me. Come here. She's going to be mad at me. Look, hug me. Hug me. Oh, look. That kind of hurt. As long as I can't, we can't actually embrace. We can't actually be close because there was something in the way. There was an obstruction. And see, that's what repentance is. God's pointing out something, and sometimes it hurts, that's preventing you from coming into full embrace. Let's, Let's go just a little bit further. My flesh and my heart failed, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they are that are far from thee shall perish, all the bad stuff. Yay, yay, yay. But then look at verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Okay. 
here's what I want you to see. Verse 28 actually answers verse 1. See, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to all those that have a clean heart or a pure heart. Now, clean and pure, I know sometimes we kind of equate that with being morally perfect. But it actually means undiluted. If I give you a glass of water and it's like orange tinted or brown tinted, you're going to be like, this ain't pure water. This water ain't clean. I ain't drinking this. But if it's crystal clear, it conveys that maybe it's pure water. That's why we filter the water. Because we want pure water. We want it to be without dilution. That's why certain medication is so strong they have to dilute it depending on the need that it's supposed to meet. So when it says pure in heart, it means undiluted. That's the process of removing the things that are in the way. It's getting out the dilution. It's getting out and filtering your heart so that it can be pure before God. And what Asaph comes to conclude when he goes through this whole trajectory of staring at the wicked and getting his perspective shifted and then having an encounter with the presence of God and then being condemning himself and then being led to repentance and all of this this process when he comes to the culmination of it all he simply says this it's good for me to draw near to god to trust in him it's good for me to draw near to god meaning that god's good to israel to those that are pure in heart to those that are good god is good to those that are good it's good for me to draw near to him meaning God's good when I draw near. And if I want to experience His goodness, I draw near. Most people, they experience God or they hear about an experience of God and they separate themselves. But what this is saying is, no, push through that and draw near to God and you'll experience His covenant blessings. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to get into your word. Lord, I pray that everything that I've communicated has been communicated in a clear manner so that everybody could receive something. Lord, even if you, by your power and your Holy Spirit, had to take it midair and transform and change it into something completely different so that they could be edified and challenged and changed and be brought into a greater place of repentance and intimacy with you, then so be it. But God, I'm just praying right now that every single person in this house receives something that helps them draw near to you. That an obstruction is removed and that they can go into a greater depth of intimacy with you. Because God, you are good. And I want everyone here to experience your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, guys. Have a Merry Christmas. You're dismissed.